by way of introduction, I would tell you that uh, probably the closest we get to a chief executive officer, uh, a pope, as you would, for the PCA, is that every year at, at our, our annual governing meeting, the General Assembly, we elect a moderator. And uh, in 2018, we elected Erwin Ince, the Reverend Dr. Erwin Ince, is the first African-American moderator of the Presbyterian Church in America. So that's one reason to listen to him. Uh, he, he's done a great job, a stellar job, as a matter of fact, uh, in that post. But I, I want to tell you some other reasons you should give careful uh, listening powers that you have to Erwin this morning. Uh, shortly after Julie and our family moved to College Park, Maryland in 2008, I got to know Erwin. And Erwin and Kim and Julie and I became uh, good friends. And the more I got to know about Erwin, the better I came to like him, uh, the more I came to admire him. Uh, he is truly a great heart. And in proof of that, uh, a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, he left his church in Columbia, Maryland, to join the Grace D.C. Church Planting Network to found something called the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. He's going to be talking a bit about that uh, after the worship service. But I want you to understand how incredibly strategic this is. God's at work in our denomination. Uh, I was called at about the same time uh, to head up the Unity Fund so that what we can begin doing is moving in a biblical direction, a more biblical direction, a more targeted direction of looking like the church in her glory. In Revelation 7-9, John uh, describes what he saw of the church in her glory, and he said, And after this I looked, and behold, a multitude no one can number, people from all nations, from every tongue and tribe and people, gathered before the throne and before the land, the Lamb, dressed in white robes holding palm branches in their hands and crying, Alleluia. The PCA needs to move to looking more like the church in her glory because that is our destination. That's, that's who God has made us to be. And it's not insignificant that the church in her glory was described chiefly by her unity and her diversity at the same time. And so uh, the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission, I rejoice in it. When I began to discover what Erwin was thinking, he was basically taking a lot of his doctoral dissertation and turning it into a curriculum. And it's not a one-and-done kind of weekend conference. And now, yay, all racism is healed forever and we're done. Let's move on to the next thing. It's a three-year conversation with the Word of God and with other Christians about how we can move forward in loving our neighbor as ourself. And so with that behind all of that, I just want to say, this is my good friend. He's a great preacher, and I welcome him to this pulpit. Erwin, come and bring God's word to us. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, y'all. It is a joy, a privilege uh, to be with you this morning. It's been a good weekend. I'm grateful for the invitation uh, Pastor Hal and the folks that we've met with um, has been, um, yeah, just a full, full weekend and a balm to my soul. And I am grateful, particularly for the privilege of being able to break the bread of life with you this morning from God's Word. And I want to speak to you from 
the passage in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and I want to speak with you on this subject. The doctor is in. The doctor is in. Would you look with me at this passage? It is in your bulletin. I will read it into your hearing, and then we will pray. Listen to God's Word. It reads this way. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, that those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word this morning that is not dead, but that is alive and that is sharp and that is active and that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And, O Lord, our confession is that we all sit in this place naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must all give account. And, Lord, we are grateful for this good news because that means you know precisely what we stand in need of. And so would you be pleased to take these weak and unworthy efforts of mine in your word and use them to bless your people, to meet us where we are and give us what we need. O Lord, if it is faith, would you give us the gift of faith? 
we need to be encouraged this morning, would you encourage us? Lord, if we need to be corrected this morning, would you in your mercy correct us? That we would be people who live not for our glory, but for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I would venture to guess that all of us in here have been to the doctor our entire lives, even from the youngest to the oldest. The general trend of our doctor visits over the course of our lives are like an an upside-down bell curve, if you will. At the beginning of our lives, uh, in the earliest days when we're babies, it's like we're at the doctor's office every few months. We got to get this shot and that shot. We got to get poked and prodded for this. We got to have our weight checked. Are we growing in health? We got to check our hearing and our eyesight and, and on and on it goes. And then when we get into kind of our young adult years, uh, uh, we, we usually feel pretty good physically and, and often have to be reminded uh, to go to the doctor for our annual physical. But then as we get older, kind of in the phase I'm in right now, when you start to go back up the other side of the bell curve it, and, and stuff starts to like break down, it's like we're infants again. Except now that we got jobs, we don't just see a family doctor. We got to go see the ophthalmologist and the cardiologist and the urologist and the podiatrist and every otherologist that there is. Every body part gets its own doctor who's trying to keep us from falling apart. And my point is that it doesn't matter whether you are a newborn baby, a young adult in good health, or if you are among the, quote-unquote, more mature of us in here, everybody's got to keep going to the doctor. As long as you are alive, you will be in need of having your health diagnosed. And you never get past this need for the doctor until you have no more need for the doctor. And this is the same reality when it comes to the, to the church and the Christian faith. You see, we never arrive at perfection and optimal health, as it, as it were, as, as individuals in our faith. We always have to be made aware of the, the areas of unhealth, our, our sin, if you will, the ways in which our hearts are straying or have strayed away from God. And the same is true of the church as a body. The, the perfect church does not exist. In the first eight verses of the first chapter of the book of Revelation that we did not read, one of the things that we find, if you read those verses, you will find is that, that Jesus is the King of kings and, and Jesus is the great high priest. He is, John says, the, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. He is the ruler over all earthly rulers. 
rulers. He is king, and he is the one, it says, who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood. He is the great high priest who serves as both the, the one who is making the offering and as the offering itself. He gave up his life, offering himself to God to make us free from the chokehold that, that sin has on us. And when we see Jesus in the verses that we are looking at this morning, uh, the Apostle John who wrote these words isn't just offering us something new or different about Jesus. He is expanding on what he's already said. The doctor is in. Jesus the ruler and the great high priest appears here as the one who is able to, to diagnose our condition and to provide his prescription. We've got to recognize that the doctor is always in. Jesus is always present, checking the pulse, diagnosing the health issues, and providing the prescription for renewed health and vitality. And so we're going to take this passage in three paragraphs and talk about uh, three things. I want to talk to you this morning about the condition of the patient from verses 12 to 16, and then we're going to talk about the credentials of the doctor from, uh, 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 rather, verses 12 to 16, sorry, 9 to 11 is the condition of the patient, Uh, uh, 12 to 16 is the credentials of the doctor, and verses 17 to 20 is the doctor's command. The condition of the patient, John says to the churches in verse 9, I, John, your brother in the, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? You might say, yes, I know. To be a Christian means that I have repented from my, of my sins and I've put my faith in God through Jesus Christ, and you would be right. You might say, yes, I know what it means to be a Christian. It means that Jesus is my Savior and my Redeemer. He took the punishment for my sins in his sacrificial death on the cross, and you'd be right. You might be someone who prefers the the metaphor of adoption and say, yes, to be a Christian means that I have been adopted into the family of God, and you would be right also. All of these and more are the ways that the Bible describes what it means to be a Christian, but do you know the most common way that the New Testament describes Christians? Over 150 times in the New Testament, Christians are described as those who are in Christ. In other words, those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, that union with Jesus Christ is at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Christian life, and the heart of life together as God's people. I bring this up because these are the patients that I am talking about when I say the condition of the patient. It is those who are in Jesus, who are united to him by faith. And there's something about these patients' condition that we need to realize from this text. John says, 
I'm your brother and, and your partner in Jesus. I'm with you and we're in this thing together, united in Jesus. But there's a particular condition that those who are in Jesus experience. He says, I'm your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And this trifecta reality of the Christian life, the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance cannot be separated. You may find yourself in here this morning as someone who's not in Jesus. And even if you're not a Christian, there's no better place for you to be this morning. And I wouldn't have you buy into a false narrative of what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that all your problems go away and life is now all full of roses and sunshine. We're in the book of Revelation, and when you come to the book of Revelation, and, and Christians often hear the word tribulation, we, we often think of some horrible and terrifying time that's coming. But, but John is not here talking about some future disaster. He's talking about what life in Jesus looks like right now. That tribulation and trouble and distress and suffering and persecution. See, here's the deal. A few years ago, uh, there was a great panel discussion with some African-American Christians at an annual conference uh, called the Leadership Development Resource Conference, and the discussion was around uh, seeking peace following racial tensions that had risen to the surface again after the shooting death of, of Michael Brown in St. Louis, and one white lady who was talking about what it looked like to, to spend the last 20 years of her life moving out of her comfort zone uh, towards reconciliation said something profound. She said, we are all prosperity people in our hearts. By default, we think we have a right to be comfortable, and that's the way it's supposed to be if life is going to be good. She says things, she said things are more broken than the Oz of America has taught us to believe. Kate Bowler is a historian at Duke Divinity School and and last year, she published a memoir titled, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I've Loved. It is an account of her struggle to understand the personal and intellectual dimension of the American belief that all tragedies are tests of character. And she writes this, she says, what would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says you are limitless? Everything, she says, is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not yet here. What if rich did not have to mean wealthy and whole did not have to mean healed? What if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here, we are loved, and that is enough. You see, 
We would much prefer it if John described the condition of being in Jesus as being our brother and our partner in the kingdom that's in Jesus. We'd much rather have the tribulation and patient endurance part of it left out. But this is a triple reality that's joined together for Jesus' church in the right here and the right now. That's our condition, and here's why it's important. If you keep reading the next two chapters of, of Revelation, you come across these seven churches that, uh, that Jesus writes to who are dealing with this trifecta of tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance in different ways. And Jesus has to press most of them to embrace the reality and what it means for them. Now, if you go to the doctor, and the doctor gives you a diagnosis and says, this is your condition, you might not like it, you might not want it to be the case, but she's been through medical school, residency is board certified, and you see all those certificates on her her wall telling you that she's got credentials to tell you about your condition. We might not be happy about it. But Jesus can press us on what it means to be in him, united to him, because he's the only one with the credentials to say, this is the way it's going to be for those who follow me. I'm going to get to the doctor's credentials in just a second, but this messy triad of tribulation or suffering and kingdom or victory in Jesus and endurance uh, or the need to live and stay in the middle of that tension, it's all there because Christians are not called uh, uh, to, 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 to live in a, in a monastery, in a commune where we are separated from the harsh realities of life. And here's the thing, Pastor Tim Keller says it well in his book, Center Church, when he says the gospel is by no means a sentimental view of life. In fact, the Bible, he says, has a darker vision of reality than any secular critic. It tells us that Satan and his legions of demons are at work in the world. Or as Richard Lovelace put it in his book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, he says, humanity in general is afflicted by the destroyer through the structures of injustice and oppression of which flesh and the devil are joint architects. So when the covers are pulled back, like John is doing in the book of Revelation, when the covers are pulled off and we can see the spiritual realities as they are above everything else, we need to see the doctor and his credentials. John says in verse 10 that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He is participating in this community of the Holy Spirit on the Lord's Day Sunday, and he's about to have his eyes and his ears open and his mind blown. He's 
says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a, like a trumpet saying, what you see, I want you to write in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when he turns, he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, he says, is one like, the, like a son of man. And what John sees is the reality that the doctor is in. Jesus will say to John in verse 20 that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And here is Jesus right smack in the middle of the churches. And this Jesus who was walking about in the middle of the churches does not look like the Jesus who walked about on the streets of Palestine. This Jesus that John sees has the features, he says, of a son of man that the prophet Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 10, this son of man, John says, was clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest and his hair of his head were were white, like white wool, like, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnt bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters and in his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. His face shining like the sun in its full strength and the sharp double-edged sword leave no doubt that this son of man is the ruler of the kings on the earth. He has the authority and the ability to judge all of creation. But I said that the doctor is it. We need to sit in the reality that Jesus takes his position in the middle of the churches, and what dominates the description is his holiness and his purity that gives him the credentials to be a great high priest. That is the imagery that is communicated by this long white robe with a golden sash around his chest. He is the ultimate in purity with hair that is white like wool, like snow, and with feet that are like exquisite brass burned in a furnace. He is perfectly suited for this role because his eyes are like a flame of fire. That means nothing can escape his penetrating gaze. He searches the minds and the hearts of all people. See the glory of Jesus. See the glory of Jesus, but also see the mercies of God. 
The doctor is in the middle of the lampstands as the great high priest. In the Old Testament, there was the temple, and the temple had lampstands, and the priests had a job to do when it came to the lampstands. One commentator reminds us in his commentary that the priests would would trim the lamps, and they would remove the wick and the oil, and they would refill the lamps with fresh oil, and they would relight those lamps that had gone out. Likewise, this commentator says, Christ tends to the ecclesial, the church lampstands. That is, he looks after the churches. He cares for the churches. He ministers to the churches by commending and correcting and exhorting and warning in order to secure the church's fitness for service as light bearers in a dark world. The doctor is in his, in, in, he's got the credentials to keep the light burning. Jesus tends to his church. He is tending to his churches to make his people fit for service as light bearers in a dark world. And this, this Redeemer is actually at the heart of the point of the whole book of Revelation. You know, if you ever read through Revelation, you, get, you can get kind of lost and confused and all, right, and all the, uh, uh, the dragon and all. What does all this mean? The central focus of Revelation is right here. It is to exhort, to encourage the the people of God, to encourage the Christian community to continue witnessing to Jesus Christ as light in the midst of a compromising and idolatrous church and world. You see, it's not just outside of the Christian community that you find idolatry and compromise. You find it inside Christian community too. That's because there's plenty of darkness and trouble in the world. Sometimes in the church that I helped to plant and pastor for 10 years, we would have these gatherings. We wanted these kind of get-to-know-you dinners. We, would, we, would, we called them progressive dinners, right? You'd go to a dinner at somebody's house, and there would always be some topic or question to, to, convert, to, to talk about uh, or to spark discussion. And regularly, one of the questions... Uh, we would ask is, if there's one thing you could ask God to change in this world, what would it be? If there's one thing that you could ask God to change in this world, what would it be? We would ask that question and there would always be plenty of responses because everybody knows that things are jacked up in this world. Everybody knows that there's stuff, there's all kinds of stuff that is wrong in the world. And some of it scares us. In that same book, Center Church, Tim Keller again makes this point. He says, we live in the first era of history that considers happy endings to be the work of inferior art. Modern critics, movies, art, etc. insist that life is not like that. Rather, it's full of brokenness and paradox and irony and frustration. 
if you want to win an Oscar, don't make a fairy tale. Make a dark movie and the critics will love you. We see the darkness of, of real evil in this world. We saw it again just a few days ago in New Zealand with the murder of, of Muslims, fellow image bearers of God. We see it in the darkness of racism that's still alive and well in our own country in the tensions that have exploded over the past few years. We see it even in our own hearts and minds as we are tempted toward evil. These things seem to be so overwhelming and and there's too much trouble in the world for us to get our minds wrapped around it. Here's how evil works. Karen Ellis, she serves as the director of the Center for Culture and Ethnicity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta. And her particular area of research uh, and focus is on the persecuted church around the world. And in a podcast interview a few years back, she mentioned an article uh, that was written in the Washington Post by a woman named uh, Suad McKennett. And, and this, this woman was a visiting uh, lecturer at Harvard University, at Johns Hopkins University, and the Geneva Center for Security policy. And the the article's headline that this lady wrote is, even the Islamists of ISIS are obsessing over Ferguson. It was a reference to how, it was a reference to how the the radical Islamists of, of ISIS were trying to use Ferguson and the racial unrest and on social media as a way to recruit disenfranchised young black men. And Karen Ellis says, listen, the dark worlds collide. The dark worlds were colliding, and and she asked this question. She said, how is this not a pastoral issue, an issue for the church, the triad of kingdom and tribulation and and patient endurance are real because Jesus would have his people engaging the young and disenfranchised men with other kinds of hashtags like hashtag Proverbs 110, my son of sinners enticed you, do not consent. In other words, to come with Jesus, to come along with Jesus as light in the world is messy. But I love this last point I want to make from this text, the doctor's command. You see, things like what that uh, visiting lecturer and journalist wrote, uh, that, that can make us afraid. But the doctor has the credentials to issue a command in verses 17 and 18. And he says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Here's why I love the command, this prescription that Jesus gives to John. What was making John afraid? What had John, afra- uh, what had John fearing? It wasn't the tribulation. It wasn't the tribulation. It was Jesus. 
John says in the first part of verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This vision of Jesus, the great high priest, glorious in majesty, full of splendor and awe, shook John to the very core of his being. He was like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he, Isaiah saw the Lord and said, Woe is me, I am undone. John says, I fell at his feet like I was dead. With a view to the majesty of Jesus, with a view, listen, with a view to the majesty of Jesus, for John, the fear of the dark world was no more in view. (laughs) Jesus puts his right hand on John and says, do not fear. Do not fear. I tell you something this morning. It's not a stretch to say that's the whole book. Do not fear. If you are in Jesus, do not fear. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the living one. He was dead, but he did not stay dead. He got up from the grave, and he is alive forevermore, and he is the key holder. He is the ancient of days, and he's in control over all the forces of death. And he will say to church number six, the church in Philadelphia, the words of the holy one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. How do you live in this dark world? How do you live in this dark world? You don't live by denying the darkness as if it's not real. You don't live in seclusion building up walls hoping the darkness will never penetrate. The movie critics are right. Don't give me fairy tales because the darkness has an impact on everybody. You live in this dark world in Jesus. In Jesus, united to him, united to his body in a reconciled community. Michael Whitlock, in his book, The Message of Revelation, puts it this way. He says, you learn to link in your mind the church as you see it, lamps that gleam here and there across the dark world, ever seemingly threatened by extinction, and the church as Christ shows it, a cluster of inextinguishable stars in the hand of their creator, you are able to face tribulation because of what you know of the kingdom, to confront the storm because your foundations are deep in the rock. The tribulation and the kingdom produce the patient endurance. 
you learn to live in the world in Jesus because in him our foundations are deep in the rock. We're about to celebrate a feast at this table. We're about to come together and eat and drink in communion, in fellowship together. And even at this table, we are reminded, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Jesus has overcome the darkness. Jesus has overcome the darkness of the world and he's reigning right now. That's the point. The covers are pulled back so we can see and that we can live together as his people in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord. For that word, do not fear. There's so much in this world that seems to threaten us and that makes us afraid. Lord, we are even afraid of possibly tomorrow because we don't know what's going to happen. But Lord, would you be pleased to make these words, those simple words, Take deep root in our hearts as your people that we would not fear because you are alive and well and that you reign as the true king over all the earth. Do this for us, we pray in your name. Amen.